Since our initial release of Kevin Dykes' story, there have been some new developments, and this is a re-release of that story with new content. As a child in the late 1970s, Kevin Dykes accidentally killed his best friend when they were playing with a gun, sending him to juvie for involuntary manslaughter. When he got out, he turned to petty drug dealing in Compton, California. Fast forward to 1986. After a terrible assault that led to a four-month hospital stint, Kevin continued peddling drugs from his temporary wheelchair for two men named Slim and Hondo. Kevin rented a bed and a trailer home in his landlord's driveway, where Slim and Hondo occasionally hit weapons. That June, two incidents occurred just days apart, resulting in one murder and two attempted murders. The first, during a party, when Kevin booted his friend Ephraim for being belligerently drunk, Slim and Hondo followed Ephraim, stabbing him several times. A neighborhood mother, Mrs. Bradley, came to Ephraim's aid, only to get stabbed as well. Kevin intervened, jumping from his wheelchair to stop the assault before it turned fatal. A few days later, Slim and Hondo accused Kevin's friend, Otis Perry, of stealing their gun from Kevin's trailer home, stabbing him 81 times. Unable to stop the murderous frenzy and fearing for his own life, Kevin helped them clean up before going to the police a few hours later. A few days after that, Kevin was arrested for cocaine possession and put into a special holding tank for state's witnesses. Then, three jailhouse snitches claimed that Kevin had confessed to all three attacks in exchange for leniency in their own cases. Kevin Dykes is serving life in prison on the word of three notorious jailhouse snitches. This is Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleha Mosin. 
And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Global Telling. You have a prepaid call from... Chairman. An inmate at... The California State Prison, Los Angeles County, Lancaster, California. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. To accept this call, say or dial 5 now. Thank you for using Global Tail Link. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. Today we have an incredible story, so we're going to get right into it. And I'm going to introduce you first to Stephen K. Hauser. He's a criminal defense attorney representing the star of this episode, Kevin Dykes. Stephen, welcome to Wrongful Conviction. Thank you. Glad to be here. And Kevin Dykes is on the phone with us from prison, and I hope we'll be able to do something about his situation because it is awful. Kevin, I'm sorry you're here um, or you're where you are, but I'm happy you're here with us today. So thank you for being here. No problem. I thank you for the opportunity. This case goes back to Compton, 1986, and it's got it's got so much that you'll think I'm talking about a movie script that would be too much to be believed, except for it's real. It's got gangsters named Hondo and Slim. It's got drugs. It's got snitches that ended up on 60 Minutes. It's got laws that changed and, and victims who testified that this was not the guy who did it. It's got a guy who's in prison for three and a half decades with no evidence against him, except the testimony of jailhouse snitches who have recanted their testimony. It is nuts, but it's true. So let's get right into it. And Kevin, let's start with you going back to your uh, youth because you grew up in Compton, right? Yes. I grew up good two-parent home, doing the pop water sports. I actually had a real good upbringing until I, uh, I think it was 1978, I ended up actually killing my, my best friend. I went for a voluntary manslaughter and I was sick of wise. And for those of you who don't know, YA or CYA is the California Youth Authority. As I understand it, your friend's death was entirely accidental. Just two kids who made a big mistake playing with a gun. But they still sent you away to juvie for involuntary manslaughter. And I also understand that you harbor a lot of guilt about this, even though the family forgave you. Yes. His family, they stayed directly across the street from my family. Even to this day, they still stay on the same street. Although the family had forgiven me, written me letters and was coming to see me, when I got out, I saw what I did to that family. And I didn't know how to process. Although my mother and my father and my grandmother and all kinds of people were trying to help me, I didn't know how to ask for the help that I actually needed. So I got deeper into drugs, deeper into the gang stuff. So the guilt kind of derailed your potential, it seems. And after juvie, you start dealing drugs and looking outside of what seemed like a supportive home for whatever it was that you felt you needed, acceptance, identity, whatever, out in the street. So fast forward to January 1986, some other really bad stuff happens. January 18th, somebody tried to kidnap me. They tried to kidnap me in front of my house. I fought them, they ran me through a brick wall, they broke my hip and smashed my pelvis. So I went to the hospital January 18th, all the way to May 20th. When I got out of the hospital, I was in a wheelchair and I had a walker, and I was going to a therapy. Yes, someone tried to kidnap Kevin. So 
You fought them off, and they ended up hitting you with their car against a brick wall, broke your hip, snapped your pelvis, and put you in the hospital for four months. I mean, you're lucky to even be alive, and we haven't even gotten to the part that has you locked up right now. Okay, so it's May 1986. You're temporarily in this wheelchair doing physical therapy and dealing drugs for these two mid-level management drug dealers named Slim and Hondo. Uh, Slim and Hondo decided that they were going to take over the local drug sales. I believe they helped Kevin and some of his friends with small amounts of cocaine to sell in the neighborhood. And they would periodically show up and, I guess, resupply the local sellers, including Kevin. And Kevin, you were renting a place to stay from a man named Mr. Bryce. You were renting a bed in this mobile home that sat in his driveway, right? Yes. I was uh, staying in Mr. Bryce's mobile home. He had a mobile home that had like six beds, a oven, a shower, had all that stuff inside. It was parked in the driveway. Sometimes when my friends used to place to stay, it had like six places where you could sleep in there. So Otis would come in and sleep in there. And Otis is Otis Perry who occasionally stayed at Mr. Bryce's mobile home, and he's the one that was eventually stabbed by Slim and Hondo for taking the gun that they had left in the trailer the night that these two attempted murders occurred outside a party at Mr. Bryce's house. Yes. Oh, and my cousin Pam was inside the mobile home. I was inside the house where the party was at when the fight, when the fight happened. So I didn't know Otis was out there at the time. And I know Slim pulled up. They knew Mr. Bryce didn't allow guns in his house. But they hid a gun in the mobile home with my cousin and Olsen. But I still didn't know nothing about that at that time. Okay, so now the stage is finally set for these crimes to take place. This is, we're talking June 19th, 1986. There's a little party going on at Mr. Bryce's. Your friend Otis and your cousin Pam are in the mobile home in the driveway. Slim and Hondo, your bosses, come to hang out. But out of respect for Mr. Bryce, they leave their gun in the mobile home. Then your friend Ephraim is at the party, and he is drunk to say the least. Well, Ephraim is my older homeboy. He was drunk, being belligerent, and uh, messing with the females that was up in there, grabbing drinks that didn't belong to him. And I told Ethan, man, go down to the pool, man, kick back. I got him. And he kept on, so I got pissed off, and I hit him once. And when I hit him, Hondo and Slim, both of them attacked him. Because of my, here's what they said. Because I didn't understand why did they get involved in that. Here's what they said. Because I could barely walk, they uh, people were taking advantage of my disability. Ah, okay. So your drug bosses are sticking up for you, but then they go way beyond what you would ever want them to do. Yes. So once I struck Ethan, both of them attacked him. I got them to stop, told Ethan to leave. He left, and then they chased him down the street. They caught him at the end of the corner. Once I got down there, I saw that they were actually stabbing When I hollered, Hondo, leave him alone, Hondo. He looked up and saw me, but when he saw me, he saw Miss Bradley behind me. Miss Bradley is uh, my older homeboy's mother. When she looked up and saw that it wasn't her son, she tried to turn and run. He ran her down, grabbed her by her dress, and started stabbing her. I hopped my way to him and grabbed him to get him off of her. 
And once I was holding him, she got loose, which gave me some time to get up. And then I got to convince them to get into the car and drove them off. I drove them off to a motel. And then I came back to check on Ephraim and Miss Bradley, but the ambulance already came and they went to the hospital. So you basically saved Mrs. Bradley and Ephraim from being murdered by Slim and Hondo by convincing them to stop stabbing them and drive away from the scene. But this incident on June 19th is what becomes two charges of attempted murder that gets stuck on you, the guy confined to a wheelchair at the time. <laughs> Um, yeah. Okay. So Slim and Hondo stabbed both Ephraim and Mrs. Bradley. You drove them to a motel. At some point, your friend Otis, back at the mobile home, takes the gun Slim and Hondo had left behind. Not too smart, by the way, because Slim and Hondo knew who was in the mobile home when they stashed it in the first place. So they come looking for Otis on June 23rd. June 23rd, he came over looking for Otis, like one something in the morning, they said, come outside. I'm going to go and kill Otis. I didn't know Otis was out here in the motorhome. So when I went out to the front yard, door in the motorhome opened. Otis stepped out. Hondos attacked Otis. He made with my gun at. He said, we can go get it. He said, too late. And they attacked him. They started fighting. Otis was fighting back. So they were fighting him from the side of the motorhome. He went around the garage. And that was the first time I saw him being stabbed. Then I came back from around there. I wasn't able to run or whatever, so I didn't say nothing. And just listened to everything that was going on. And then, I don't know how much time passed, but then Arnold's came from around there. There was no more noise. I was wondering, okay, now what? He said, uh, uh what's up? You got something wrapped me? And then I, I gave him my blanket. So him and Slim went behind the thing and wrapped him up, drug him out, and put him in the car. And instead of him and Slim going, he said, you Slim, you stay here. Watch out all the blood that was coming from behind the mobile And he told me to get in the car and ride with him. So I took him over to my homeless neighborhood by the canal, and that's where he jumped in. I said, look, I'll be back. I left and never came back. And what would you tell anyone listening now who's wondering why you played any part in getting rid of the body with Slim and Hondo? I did with any reasonable person not trying to die would have done as I've seen what I saw. I knew I got to do something. It made myself a part of what's going on. And I wasn't physically able to do nothing to prevent myself from being killed. And I like to stress that. That was the smartest thing that I could have done at the time for myself, instead of doing nothing. If you had done nothing at all, what, what do you think Slim and Honda would have done? I was a little bit too afraid to find out. I was in a position where something happened to my friend, and Honda needed to know where I stood. And I did what I thought was the best thing to do for myself. Nothing I could do for Otis. Now I was about saving myself. This episode is underwritten by Paul Weiss, Rifkin, Wharton, and Garrison, a leading international law firm. Paul Weiss has long had an unwavering commitment to providing impactful pro bono legal assistance to the most vulnerable members of our society and in support of the public interest, including extensive work in the criminal justice area.
Otis's murder eventually gets pinned on you, the guy who was only able to watch or listen helplessly as your friend got stabbed to death. And then, in order to save your own life, you did what probably any of us would have done. You played along with Slim and Hondo until you could get away. I would not want to have been in your shoes at that point. You just lost your friend Otis. You had to contend with the question of to snitch or not to snitch on like a Sophie's Choice on these two murderous drug dealers. And that's when I was trying to process what it just happened. And so 6, 6 30, 7 o'clock in the morning, that's when I saw the police and I told them that uh, I think I know who that was. When they said, come over here, look, they moved the blanket. I knew it was. I said, I know where he lives. I took him to his mother's house. And then when we came back to the scene, I asked him, I said, look, if I had any information, how could I contact you? And he gave me his card. I took the card, rode around two more hours, and then I went to the phone booth. And then I called the police and said, look, and I told them everything that they needed to know and told them where I was at. They came and picked me up, took me out to the station, and then I made the tape. And then once I made the tape, they let me go. I went back home. So you made a statement to a sergeant, Sergeant Preston, and you're going to be a witness. And Steve, maybe you can tell us about the next part of this story, which is how Kevin was picked up for cocaine possession sometime later. And while in the state's witness holding area of L.A. County Jail, he eventually meets three guys who are responsible for him being in this horrible predicament today. What happened was Kevin got arrested for a possession of cocaine charge. And because he was the main witness against Slim and Hondo on a murder case, they put him in with other prosecution witnesses. And it's commonly called the snitch tank, which is a separate jail from the men's central jail. And while Kevin was in there, he told his cellmate, uh, Willie Battle, and the guy that was in the next cell over, uh, Jesse Williams, he told them what actually happened. As they asked, and that's very common in jail, what are you in for? And they exchanged information, but this time it only came from Kevin. He told them what happened, and they twisted it around and ran with it. And then they called the Compton Police Department and asked them if they had a, a murder case where the body was found by a canal. They called it a canal. It's really a drainage ditch. And they put him in contact with Detective Marvin Branscombe, who was not Sergeant uh, Preston, who Kevin gave the statement to. And they convinced Branscombe that what they had to say was, was true, which they said that Kevin confessed to these attempted murders and murder. They say, hey, we got a guy down here bragging about killing this guy and stabbing this lady and his other, telling he's a big time dope killer. So I ended up going from being the actual witness to now being the actual killer. So Kevin became a defendant instead of the prosecution witness. And they moved him out of the snitch tank to another part of the jail. So Kevin's transferred over to the central jail. And then he met a very notorious snitch named Leslie White. And I get a call from Leslie White. I'd never heard of Leslie White. Leslie White says, I understand you're defending Kevin Dykes and that he has been ratted out by two snitches. And I said, that's exactly right. He says, well, I can help you. You come down here and I'm going to tell you all about the snitch system and how it works. Okay. 
So I go down to the jail. I talk to Leslie White. He tells me about how inmates get a hold of paperwork and change facts and get a hold of the detective or DA that's handling a particular murder case. And because they know these unique facts, they can convince the detective or uh, district attorney that's handling the case that this confession was a valid confession. So I said, well, that sounds good. Okay, I'll put you on the witness list, Mr. White. So about a week or two later, I get the witness list from uh, the district attorney, and Leslie White is on there as a people's witness. And not only that, I get a report that says that Kevin Dykes confessed to Leslie White. And I'm flabbergasted because I just talked to Leslie White and he was going to be a witness for Kevin. So I go down to the jail and I, I call out Leslie White and he's willing to come and talk to me. And I said, what are you, are you a witness for the prosecution now? He says, yep. I said, well, you know that Kevin's innocent. Why are you doing, what, how can you do that? And he says, well, man's got to do what he's got to do. That's what he said. I got to be honest, my head is spinning and I didn't even live through this. I mean, this is Kevin. I mean, I'm so sorry that you're living. This is like, this is your life we're talking about. I didn't actually believe that what that was going on was even possible. I didn't think that that stuff would hold. I'm like, what? Hold up. I'm an actual eyewitness. These guys, they don't know nothing about where I live or nothing about what actually happened. So I didn't really believe I mean, this is this is like nothing. I don't think we've ever heard a story like this before. So, Stephen, what happens next? When we got to court, all they had was his statement to Sergeant Preston and three snitches. And I couldn't believe that they would even want to proceed with this evidence. But they did. And just before the verdict was issued. I told Kevin, I said, now, Kevin, when you get out of here, you've got to change your ways, be a law-abiding citizen and a use to society. And he said, yeah, okay, Mr. Hauser, I'm going to do that. Came back guilty. We were both floored. You were sentenced to 24 years to life. Here it is now, 2020, you're still in. Could you just take us back there? Put us in that courtroom with you, if you can. I actually could not believe the verdict. You know, I actually ended up crying. I didn't see how it was possible. Yeah, I was an actual eyewitness. I came forward. I gave them everything they needed. All the evidence, the car, the weapons, the people. Ephraim testified that uh, I didn't attack him. Ephraim was stabbed like 33 times. And he testified that I didn't attack him. And testified that I didn't attack Miss Bradley. That was my friend's mother. There was nobody there that said I attacked anybody but the sisters. And this is something I really need to highlight here, which is that if you go in a jury box and you're presented with a case where someone's life is hanging in the balance, just like Kevin's was, and there's no evidence connecting that person to the crime except for the testimony of a snitch, you cannot vote to convict because it's crazy. I mean, these are people who are clearly incentivized. They may not tell you that at the time, but you have to understand that the defense can never bribe a witness. That's a, that's a crime punishable by a long time in jail. 
but the government can make a deal with a snitch to reduce their charges or drop their charges in exchange for testimony. And that is the best bribe of all. So it's the most unreliable testimony imaginable. And here you have a case where the direct evidence contradicts what the snitches were saying. The evidence showed that Kevin could not have committed this crime, and yet he ends up getting convicted on the the testimony of people who were were notoriously untrustworthy and were incentivized to lie. Mr. Holland found evidence where they get apartments. They say, oh, he's threatening my family. So the government gives them money to relocate them, move them in apartments. All of them end up getting reduced sentence. Leslie White end up getting out after testifying against me. I don't know if you remember this, Mr. Holland. He came right back. And then he threatened the district attorney, if you don't let me back out, I'm going to blow this whole case up. You remember that, Ms. Holland? What happened was uh, Leslie White then uh, went on 60 Minutes when he was back in again in the jail. And he showed on camera how he could work his magic and get favors from a DA. And then when I saw that, I went down and talked to Leslie White. I said, uh, well, now I know for sure you lied in Kevin's case. And he said, yeah, I did. And I said, well, I want you to sign an affidavit that you lied in Kevin's case because Kevin deserves a new trial. And so sure enough, he signed it. But instead of giving Kevin a new trial, the DA indicted him. Leslie White, with the grand jury, had me come in and testify. And they gave Leslie White four years for perjury. They gave Kevin Dykes nothing. And that's where it sat. It's all so backwards and upside down. And of course, you know, we have two more characters that are coming up. Gigi Gordon, who's on the right side of this story, and Willie Battles. We can't leave him out. Yeah, when this uh, snitch system came out, thanks to Leslie White, believe it or not, Gigi Gordon was appointed. She's a defense lawyer. She's deceased now, but uh, she was a criminal defense lawyer, friend of mine. And Gigi Gordon was appointed by, I think, the Supreme Court to do an independent investigation on all of the snitch cases to see if justice was done. And she spent over a year on this project being paid by the state of California. And as a result of Gigi Gordon's research and investigation, a law was introduced in the legislature to require corroboration if snitch testimony is going to be used in a case. And that happened. But they didn't do it retroactively. Am I getting that right? Because it's it always drives me nuts when we change a law in this country and we don't do it retroactively. How could it be different now than it was before? It, it doesn't make sense. Didn't make any sense to me. That's why I appealed it. We went to the appellate court in California, then the, the Supreme Court. And actually, uh, when we went to the Supreme Court the first time, the law had not been changed yet. But then we went back to the Supreme Court on another issue, and the law had been changed. And in federal court, the judge actually said that uh, Kevin might be innocent, but uh, there's nothing I can do because this law is not retroactive or something to that effect. And I just thought that that was the most unjust result I've ever had in my whole career. Still is. Wow. And so if Kevin's case were tried now, uh, they wouldn't have any any evidence against him because the only 
incriminating evidence was from the snitch testimony. If Kevin's case were to be tried now, they would have no evidence against him. And yet it's 34 years later and he's, uh, I can't, this is nuts. Um, I uh, went to the district attorney with that very argument. With each new district attorney that came in, I would go talk to him. And they told me that because of his statement, admitting what he did, pretending to go along with what uh, Slim and Honda were doing, because of that statement, that made him guilty. And they said, sorry, uh, you have to present new evidence to us before we're going to recommend anything for Kevin. And I said, what's the matter with these confessions by these snitches? That's new evidence, at least since the trial. Two out of three, Leslie White signed an affidavit that sent him, put himself in prison. And Jesse Williams uh, signed a letter saying that he lied in Kevin's case. He said, no, we want some more than that. Plus, you've got one snitch that you don't have, you know, retraction from, Willie Battle. We never had a retraction from him. And Willie Battle, I tried to find, but I, he's probably dead. So that's where we sit. And what is the outlook now? I mean, is there hope? I think Kevin has two, two hopes. Parole and with a new DA, I thought Jackie Lacey was very progressive. And I had high hopes for Kevin when she put together uh, her internal innocence project. And I met with a, what I thought was a very ethical, fine lawyer. And I got a very unfavorable result. And uh, I asked him during that hearing, I said, you know, as a human being, you know, do you really think that Kevin Dykes was convicted properly, fairly? He wouldn't answer. He wouldn't give me an answer. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. 
Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Hi, listener. I'm Carol Fisher, the host of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister. I'm so excited for you to hear the brand new season where we're uncovering a 35-year-old mystery. But for those of you who didn't hear season one or just want to listen to it again, you can now get access to all episodes of that first season of The Girlfriends 100% ad-free through the iHeart True Crime Plus subscription, which is available exclusively on Apple Podcasts. You'll also get access to every single episode of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, ad-free and one week early, only available to iHeart True Crime Plus subscribers. So what are you waiting for? Head to Apple Podcasts, search for iHeart True Crime Plus, and subscribe today. Nearly a year has gone by since we originally released this episode in September 2020. And shortly thereafter, in L.A. County, George Gascon was elected D.A. And Steve, last time we spoke, you said that one of the only avenues left for relief for Kevin was that very election victory. So you must have been really excited when it became clear that Jackie Lacey was on her way out and George Gascon was on his way in. I'm imagining you must have jumped right into action on the first business day of 2021. That is correct. On January 4th, 2021, I sent a letter to George Gascon, the new DA, alerting him to Kevin's situation. And I was contacted shortly thereafter by a deputy in his conviction integrity unit. She said that she had reviewed the case and she agreed with the former head of their integrity unit under Jackie Lacey that taking out all of the snitch testimony and just focusing in on Kevin's statement, both to the police and what he testified to at trial, which were both consistent, that she felt that he was guilty. Because of what he said, he shared in the criminal intent to kill his friend Otis, which I think was not reasonable. I don't understand how a deputy district attorney can look at the facts in this case, focusing on Kevin's own testimony, and come to the conclusion that he intended Otis's death, that he wanted Otis to die, or that he wanted his friend Ephraim to die, or Mrs. Bradley to die. Now, Ephraim testified in court 
that Kevin was not a part of the assault on his person or Mrs. Bradley. For the district attorney to believe that Kevin convicted himself based on his testimony of both the murder and the attempted murders is beyond belief. For a second degree murder, there has to be criminal intent. You have to share in the intent of the stabbers, in this case, Slim and Hondo, to kill Otis. And there's no proof of that from Kevin's lips. The only evidence of that is from snitch testimony, which under today's law would be inadmissible. Yeah, and with good reason. I mean, let's face it, snitch testimony for the state is almost always incentivized by leniency in the snitch's charges, making that testimony as unreliable as it could be. So this deputy in Gascon CIU wants to preserve this conviction, saying that Kevin's testimony reaches the burden of proof for criminal intent, when in reality, Kevin was essentially a hostage of Slim and Hondo until he could finally get away. I mean, had he not gone along with everything that happened in the aftermath of Otis's death, Slim and Hondo would have been dumping both Kevin and Otis's bodies, and we wouldn't even be having this conversation or know what Slim and Hondo did. So what was the end result of your discussion with Gascon's deputy? Were you able to work anything out? After uh, several back and forth conversations, she was going to bring a motion for resentencing. This was apparently a new law where they could go back into the trial court and petition for a change of sentence. She said that if Kevin would agree to change his plea from murder to manslaughter, that they would go along with it and that he could then be sentenced to whatever the maximum on manslaughter was, which is a lot less than 35 years that he's been in. So we're still waiting for that. I don't know what's happened, but the uh, district attorney that I was talking to called me and told me that there was some problem with them making this motion because some judge might deny it or she wasn't real clear on that, but that she invited me to think of a way to get around the judge having to make a decision to get Kevin out. So I suggested, well, how about if I file another writ of habeas corpus? And if the district attorney doesn't oppose it, then the judge can grant him a new trial. And once he gets a new trial, then they can dismiss the case because they don't have any evidence. They don't have any admissible evidence. Right. The only evidence they had back then was the snitch testimony, which was totally uncorroborated and therefore now inadmissible under the law that resulted from Leslie White 60 Minutes, and the subsequent investigation. Not to mention that Jesse Williams recanted, Leslie White took a perjury charge, and four years to undo his damage to Kevin, and Willie Battles is presumed dead, or he might have done the same. So, are they going to move forward with your habeas idea, or are they looking for something better to hang their hat on? Considering that your idea would prove that this conviction has absolutely no integrity. I'm not sure what's going to happen. It seems like that they're just waiting for the parole hearing. Right. Kevin is up for parole at the beginning of 2022. And if the DA's office does not oppose parole, he will probably get released on parole. However, he will be on parole for the rest of his life for a crime that he did not commit, as well as having served 35 years for a crime that he did not commit. 
I think that George Gascon himself has not heard the evidence in this case. Once he realizes exactly what went on in this case, I'm sure that he will see that justice is done and Kevin will get released. That's our hope as well. And anyone in our audience who feels the same way, and I hope all of you do, can scroll down to the link in the bio. There's a petition to George Cascone to do just that. He's a good man, and he's a very reasonable person. I mean, really, I honestly like to clone George. He's that kind of guy. We hope that he and others in his office can come around to our view. Kevin would admit to anyone that he wasn't living a really honorable life at that point. But in fact, ironically, it was at this moment in his life that he did something truly honorable. He went to Otis's mother and then to the police to do the right thing. Does that sound like the actions of someone possessing criminal intent? Well, I know I did the right thing when I went to the police. Had nothing to hide. I told the proof in, I told the proof in front of the jury. Even now, I don't regret doing the right thing because it was my friend's life. And it was important for his mother to know the truth of what happened to her son. Maybe I wouldn't say that while I'm in jail. It cost me a lot. I've lost like 17 family members. My mom had a stroke a few years ago. And it cost me a lot, but I was still doing it even after all this time. I found the Lord in the last five years, so I'm at peace finally with God and myself. So now it's like, you know what? There's nothing I can do about what they've done. I'm not going to let them take what's left that I got in my spirit. And now my family is proud of me, even though I've never done nothing because I've changed my life. So I'm going to keep pushing. I'm going to keep believing. I got to. That's all I got. And with that, we will now go to closing arguments as they still ring true today with justice delayed in this case. I, first of all, thank you both. Turn my microphone off, leave my headphones on, close my eyes and, and let you both talk about whatever you want for the last few minutes of the show. Kevin, we're going to save you for last, if that's okay. And Stephen, please just share whatever it is that's on your mind. Uh, well, uh Kevin, let's hope this is another step to get you out of prison. Uh, it's been a long, long road, but uh, I won't give up, ever. And Kevin, over to you. I'm thankful, you know, and, and it's just taking me a long time. But I'm at peace, like I said, like last five years now. And my life now still has purpose and meaning despite what they've done. I hold no ill feelings towards nobody. It is what it is. They did what they did. All I've lost, I lost my life. I was 24 years old. I'm 60 now. I've been clean over five years. So it's like, there's nothing else that I can't do because I don't control it. But I won't let what they've done to me back then do something to me now. I'm free. You know, inside. And I'm, I'm at peace. And, and, and even if I die in here, I'll be at peace knowing I stood for the truth. And for once, I did the right thing as an adult. Something that my parents were proud of. There's nothing I can do but keep my mind focused on what's possible, what could be possible, and how to help others. And it's a given opportunity. It's God, family, and my community where I see it now. 
You know, I won't let nothing take that from me. That's all I have. And I appreciate everything that you guys are doing, and, and I appreciate the support from anybody, whether it's through the governor, whatever it can be done to help me at least get the truth, the absolute truth, in front of the people. And then let them decide again. Do I feel I need to be punished for what I did then? If they say so, because I pretended, but hey, I was worried for my life, scared for my life at the time. But I did what I believed then was the right thing, and I don't regret doing that. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. Please support your local Innocence Projects and go to the link in our bio to see how you can help. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall, Jeff Clyburn, and Kevin Warnes. The music on the show, as always, is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction and on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number 1. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin, And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.